Wokeism, its origins, rise, and endgame. A spectre is haunting the West, the spectre of wokeism. All the powers of the West have entered into an unholy alliance in support of this spectre. Government, media, academia, Hollywood, corporations, non-profits, the arts, tech giants, education, and sport. Where is the opposition that has not been decried as extremist by the wokists and their supporters in power? Over the past few decades, a radical left ideology has been slowly gaining traction in the West. It was incubated in the universities, refined in activist circles, and in the last five years has exploded to conquer the major pillars of our society, from government to sport. Whilst this ideology has sought to cloak itself under the guise of social justice, as if it were a noble cause, or being woke, as if its adherents were enlightened, it is in fact a nihilistic and destructive ideology that, left unchecked, will end the West as we know it. If the 20th century suffered massively from two other isms, namely communism and national socialism, aka Nazism, our century seems set to embark on its own catastrophic experiment with wokeism. In this piece, I will lay out 1. The origins of wokeism, 2. Why it's been successful thus far, and 3. What its end goal is. By the end of this, it is my hope that you will recognise the threat this ideology poses to our freedom, and realise that sitting on the sidelines means surrendering to its rise and to your eventual psychological, emotional, social and potentially even physical subjugation. Number one, the origins of wokeism. The origins of wokeism lie in the paradox of prosperity, which is that a people and civilization that become too prosperous, secure and comfortable inevitably lose their confidence and purpose. This isn't to say that all citizens are infected by this to the same degree or even at the same time, but in the West there's one group that has led the charge in promoting destructive ideas and who have set the wheels of decay in motion, and they are intellectuals. Intellectuals flourish in times like these, and in Western society, the abundance of resources and the absence of threats like starvation, war and persecution have provided them the opportunity to make a living from their musings, and to bestow prestigious titles upon themselves in the process. Intellectuals are of course mostly found in academia, and offshoots like think tanks and non-profits, but while they are fond of education, they lack the talent, patience and sensibility for challenging and productive fields like science, engineering and business. So instead, they find their home in the lazy, relativistic domains of the humanities and social sciences. In these domains, there is no definitive right or wrong, true or false, or up or down. No idea can be disproved because they originate in feelings, not facts, and the degree to which a theory is abstract or outlandish is the degree to which it will be accepted without evidence as being true. Now, this isn't to say that initially some of these intellectuals' ideas weren't valid, including those on giving women equal rights or on ending legal discrimination against gays or blacks. 
But this has now given way to every white person is racist. There are dozens to hundreds of genders. We should have open borders. Biological men can compete in women's sports. Being obese is healthy and beautiful. The police should be defunded. And the list goes on and on and on. None of these questionable positions are for the benefit of our society, but are more a reflection of these intellectuals' desperation to remain relevant in a society in which they provide no real value. And it is far easier to achieve this by tearing down what others have built rather than by building something yourself. The wokest intellectual, therefore, chooses to bite the hand that feeds, to attack relentlessly the culture and values that made its profession, and therefore livelihood, viable in the first place. They behave as spoilt teenagers, railing against their parents. But unlike teenagers, their actions have serious societal consequences. What makes them even more hypocritical is that to hold the positions they do requires them to close their eyes to the countless positive achievements of the West over the past hundreds of years, more positives than any other culture or civilization in existence today, and to focus only on the negatives of our history, as if any other culture today were without negatives, or as if it were even possible for a culture to be without them. This further exposes their agenda as being solely about achieving cultural, and in time, political power. For if they genuinely cared so much about so-called social justice, then they would focus more of their time and energy on the many nations and cultures around the world where the negatives and injustices far exceed those in the West. The origins of wokeism therefore lie in the prosperous West's spoiled offspring turning on it, disowning it, and seeking to erase and replace it with a degenerative culture that only the mediocre-minded, emotionally demented, morally impoverished soul of the intellectual could conceive of. Let's now take a look at why its power and influence have grown so much in recent times. Number two, the rise of wokeism. The rise of wokeism has been driven by a duo of formidable strategies, which have been masterfully executed by the wokeists. These are, one, indoctrination, and two, intimidation. Let's look at each in turn. Indoctrination. Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Vladimir Lenin. That short quote says it all, and it's exactly what the wokers have been doing for years, indoctrinating those with very limited life experience, knowledge, and wisdom. Those who are deeply impressionable and emotionally and psychologically malleable and those who lack the frames of reference to verify the truth of a concept. In other words, the young. They of course have no shame in this, as anything is fair game to them. Indoctrinating the young gives them a huge advantage, and makes it very hard for these future adults to erase the falsehoods they have grown up believing, even in the face of strong evidence that contradicts it. They then in turn raise their kids to believe the same or even crazier falsehoods, for wokeism grows more crazy by the year. So, wokeism is seeded in primary schools, cultivated in high schools, but it really, truly takes off at universities. Here, spoiled, confused, and angry teens find in their professors self-righteous and simplistic railings against the system and the culture something that aligns with how they feel inside. The truth of what their professor exclaims isn't questioned, but it feels right, so they run with it, blindly. 
They'd been primed for it, after all, through many years of indoctrination in their school years. But the indoctrination doesn't just come from education. It comes from other spheres of influence in our society, too. One thing wokers understand well is that if they want their message to stick, their targets need to be exposed to it frequently and from as many mediums and messengers as possible. So they have gone about infiltrating major influence centres like television, film, music, radio, publishing, magazines, blogs, news networks, podcasts, social media, the arts, government and more. The result of this is that we hear them share their opinions and push their ideology incessantly through these mediums, which gives the average man or woman on the street the impression that it must be true because everyone is saying it, when in truth it is an extremist view. For example, the North Korean government spreading their propaganda through the very same mediums doesn't make their opinions or ideology true or beneficial to its citizens. But is every proponent of wokeism a true believer? Do the TV personalities, musicians and government bureaucrats really buy the full wokest ideology? No. Of course there's a solid minority that do. But despite the indoctrination, a majority pay it lip service for one very simple reason. They value their careers and livelihoods. This brings us to the second strategy wokers have employed to spread their ideology. Intimidation. Wokers, like all successful fanatical and extremist movements of the past, have uncovered a vulnerability in society that, when exploited, yields tremendous power and control. It is this. A productive citizen who is invested in life and society through their work, family, friends, hobbies, community activities, etc., stands to lose a lot if things go south for them. They could, for instance, lose their income, home, career, social standing, reputation, family, friends, health, and much more. So wokists, realising that the majority of society is made up of productive, regular people who have something to live for, and thus a lot to lose, have weaponized a form of cultural intimidation to get everyone, whether wokist or not, to abide by their ideology. They have set the rules of the game and forced us all to play by them. How does this work in practice? Well, here are some of the key rules they've set. Rule 1. Any criticism or questioning of anything they believe or promote is racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, imperialistic, hateful, bigoted, unjust, evil, ignorant, wrong, and a crime against humanity. Rule 2. Anything you do or say that they choose to take offence to represents a heinous and hateful attack on them or the victim group of their choosing. Rule 3. If you do not believe what they believe or support what they support, you are a bad person, plain and simple. All this in itself would be petty, small-minded and ridiculous were it not for them using these easily broken rules to justify attacks on anyone who breaks them. With their sense of righteousness in hand, the wokers throws around labels like racist, puts pressure on employers and physically intimidates the person who has transgressed. The result for this person is damage to their career, reputation and livelihood, which impacts not just them but the people who depend on them. So, very quickly, the productive citizen learns that they have far too much to lose and little to personally gain from crossing wokists and breaking their arbitrary rules. So they quietly abide by them instead and voice their discontent or disagreement in private. 
What makes this formula so effective too is that wokists have nothing to lose. If we look at the two main classes of wokists, we will see why. 1. The intellectual. These are often professors. They have tenure, which means they cannot be fired from their job. They can promote the most depraved, insane, destructive theories and turn up to work the next day and carry on their work as usual. For those without tenure, academia, think tanks and not-profits are littered with wokists, so it's unlikely they would ever fire their own kind. 2. The activists. These are the henchmen and henchwomen of intellectuals. They are the angry losers of life. They want to tear down society and recreate it in their pitiful image. They are not invested in anything which makes our society worthwhile. They have no career or money, shun their families and have no purpose except to burn everything down and usher in the wokest paradise. Then there are the supporters who don't really understand the consequences of what they are supporting and who don't see the wokest for who they really are. 1. The opportunists. These are the educated and often well-paid lackeys in all spheres of our society who go whichever way the wind blows. Whether they work in the media, corporates, government, Silicon Valley, and the list goes on, they have recognised not just that it would be a bad idea to cross wokists, but that it would be a good idea to support them, as it will help further their careers and standing in cultured society. 2. The everyday believer. These are usually people whose emotions lead their lives and decisions, or those who have been primed to believe in wokeism through years of indoctrination from the education system, the media, entertainment and the arts. For them, it just feels or seems wrong that, for example, there should be prejudice against trans people. So, of course they won't disagree with children transitioning to another sex, biological men competing against women in sports, and replacing terms like breastfeeding and mothers with chest feeding and birthing parent. So, we have a cycle that is hard to break. Ordinary, productive citizens with a stake in this life, whether rich, middle class, working class or poor, keep their mouths shut and do nothing out of fear of losing what they've got. And those who do protest against wokeism either A, have a lot of courage, or B, have nothing to lose themselves. Group A are in short supply, and Group B often hold extreme views of their own. Example, conspiracy theorists, skinheads and thugs. And though they are much demonised, in actuality they have zero power and influence. So it's not a stretch to say that wokists are winning the battle and the war. Next, let's look at where this is all leading. 3. Wokeism's Endgame The endgame is total and absolute control over our lives, laws, customs and minds. The end game is tyranny. There is no arguing or opposing, there is no questioning or challenging, there is only accepting and complying. If you think this is impossible, consider this. In 1905, the total Bolshevik membership, aka the Communists, was 8,400. By 1917, they had taken over the Russian Empire, with a population of roughly 125 million, and they fully consolidated their power within a few years. That empire became the Soviet Union. In 1921, the Chinese Communist Party was founded with 50 members. In 1925, they had 2,428 members out of a total Chinese population of almost 500 million. 
By 1949, they controlled and ran China as a dictatorship and have done so ever since. In 1920, the Nazi party membership stood at 2,000. By 1933, Adolf Hitler, its leader, became Chancellor of Germany, and a few months after this, dictator of a nation of 67 million. The biggest and bloodiest war in human history followed. These are just a few of many examples of fringe extremist groups seizing control of major nations and changing the course of not just their nation's history, but of world history. It's easy to dismiss wokers as ridiculous and foolish, but they have all the momentum on their side. They have conquered huge swaths of our society and culture without yet picking up a gun. The last step is for them to attain political power. What would they do with that power? Well, we only need look at what they do today without it, and that is behave like petty, mean and mad little dictators, cancelling anything and anyone from society at the slightest whim. They say power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what happens when the people in question are psychologically, emotionally and morally corrupted before they've gained that power? That's what we may soon find out, as did the citizens of Russia, China and Germany in the 1900s. Of course, it's important again to distinguish between wokers in the know and those who merely support them blindly out of opportunism or ignorance. The former, example intellectuals, activists and politicians, know the end game. The latter, however, cannot fathom a dark future as they either willfully or unknowingly ignore the many, many lessons, read warnings, from history. We are no more immune to takeover by extremists than were our forebears or other nations and cultures around the world. Perhaps even more so today, where technology has the power to monitor and control us, or even shut us out of the economy completely. So, what to do? Well, this isn't a piece that focuses on solutions or uber-insightful strategies that can win us the war. The wokus did not appear overnight. It has taken them decades to lay the foundation for the success they enjoy today. So defeating them will be no easy task. But if we're not aware of the problem in the first place, we won't be able to get started on fixing it. So, here you have the problem. What is the solution?